Welcome to the Harbinger of Fun podcast. I'm Joe Mars, the Harbinger of Fun, and I'd like to talk about what makes something fun, why it matters, and how to wield its mighty powers. So, without further ado, on to the show. Hey, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Um, today on the Harbinger of Fun podcast, we have our special guest, Nick Four. How's it going, Nick? I'm very well, mate. I'm very well. Thank you. How are you getting on? I'm doing. I'm doing all right. I'm catching a cold, so I'm. <laughs> oh. I gotta mute my mic when I feel it coming up. <laughs> um, but uh, other than that, uh, so just a re- just a really quick, uh, really quick overview. This podcast is about what makes something fun, why it matters, and how to wield its mighty powers. So, um, I talk to comic book writers, uh, TV producers, game designers, pro wrestlers about how to make a product engaging and fun. Um, and, uh, I, and if you, if you could, uh, for, for the uninitiated, can you describe, you know, what it is you do and, uh, and how you do it? Yeah, of course. So I am a freelance, uh, script consultant, which basically means that my work consists of um, reading screenplays and giving constructive feedback on those uh, to to writers um, in the hope that they get them sold or get a solid writing sample for them to be able to get a professional representation from an agent. That's cool. So, um, uh, is there is there anything that people might have seen that you have you have worked on? Or is it all uh, NDA? Not yet, and yeah, what I uh, what is in the in the pipeline, I can't really speak of. Um, but a lot of the time, most of my clients at the moment are um, trying to seek representation, and also uh, with, with the with the uh, the business of screenwriting in general, there's very very little that people actually write that sees the light of day. So I do get asked that question a lot. Um, but there's such a small percentage of things that even professional screenwriters um, create that actually makes it to the screen. Very few scripts even go into development. Even when they do, there's always a chance that they get pulled. So a lot of the time, screenwriters are just happy even if their script might get optioned, which means a production company buys the rights for that and takes it off the market essentially for a nominal fee. Um, and then if the script does get made, it's it's kind of like... A, yeah, it's a big, big hit for a screenwriter for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's also that's very common in all industries I've talked to. As uh, there's millions of unreleased games mm-hmm. <laughs> and game design documents. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a friend of mine, um, he he's I think he's pitched like sixty board games, and I think one was ever developed. So. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely it's, it's, a numbers <laughs> game. It's definitely a numbers game. And that's also the difference between, I think, between a lot of people who do that kind of work or any creative work professionally and do it as a hobby as well. A lot of people put all of their eggs in one basket with the one script that they have written. And then people who mm. do eventually make it, uh, you know, not, not that they're writing scripts every week, but they understand that um, you need to get more and more behind you, not only for your own experience, as a writer, but also so that you have like a wider portfolio to be able to actually share that work and get a greater chance of, of uh, selling something. 
Yeah. And actually, uh, I do want to dive into that a little bit. Is is that something common you see from, you know, people who are who are new to writing is that they are holding on to an idea for like 10 years? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think a lot of the time as well, like writers will get stuck on the same script for, yeah, for it can be even up to like 10 years. And you know that they probably have much less of a chance of of um, of actually making it professionally because you you have to uh, at some point move on to the next thing and develop your skill in a different um, in a different story. Even if you you are operating within the same genre or you're developing your voice within a, a certain field, it's important still to test out writing different characters and just not get pigeonholed with with one script and um, yeah try and put all your hopes into into one thing. It's not really a wise strategy, I don't think. That's interesting because I I just uh, interviewed Jesse Shell, who's the uh, distinguished professor at Carnegie Mellon, and he, he has his own game studio and he does board games and VR and things like that. And uh, he mentioned that you know the game designers who who cross genre, who cross platform, and um, they're they're the ones who are the most successful because they're not just making another you know NBA two K game. Or League of Legends, they they know how games work foundationally, no matter what genre or audience. Do you find that true in your profession as well? Definitely. There's there's like principles of screenwriting that are applicable across all genres. Although um, it is certainly true that each genre might be um, structured in slightly different ways. And I'm not talking here about um, a difference between three act structure being 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 the difference between each genre, but uh, with regards to those individual story beats, like for example, everyone knows with a romance, for example, that there's an inevitable meeting of two people who have a love a love interest, and then usually at some point, you know, there's uh, an argument. They get together, and 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 then with a lot of time in between, there's some kind of argument that's related in some way to one of the characters' flaws, particularly the or typically the protagonist flaw. And uh, that's one beat that's specific to to romance. So there are there are principles that are widely applicable, but definitely with genre, there's more specific things that um, a modern audience uh, a modern audience is actually conditioned to expect by now. And that's also that's kind of a double edged sword as well, because I always encourage writers to be as original as they can and not just fit within the paradigm that's already been set by the films and screenplays that have come up before it. But then at the same time, there is a um, a degree of how marketable a script is um, in terms of how, how much it does actually align with what's come before it. Um, that's particularly with the kind of mainstream industry, which of course is centered around Hollywood, at least in the Western world anyway. Uh, but independent film maybe has a little bit more room to breathe in a little bit more space for the writer or usually writer director to inject their own creative voice and um, deliver those kind of subversions and um, yeah kind of deviations from from the normal paradigm really yeah and that, that kind of leads me to one of my my first questions is um that i had planned <laughs> is uh how do you how do you continue to innovate while still using like archetypes or even tropes where you know things have to be recognized and understood by the audience but 
you know, but innovation, you know, often is something that's novel that they haven't seen before. Yeah. Is, is there, is there you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think that um, archetypes are certainly useful, at least in the, to create broad strokes for the character in their initial design. And I think a lot of the times in when, when, when um, writers are first developing their characters, they do generally start to think about the kind of person that they are, which is essentially forming to archetypes. But then to avoid that or to innovate it, as you, as you say, it's, it's more to do with bringing specificity to that character. And I think a lot of that um, comes down to the specific experience that the writer has as an individual and certain certain aspects of themselves and uh, parts of their personality that they can infuse into that character, or it maybe not in it is in um, it's maybe not within them uh, as extreme as it is in the character that they create, but it's about finding those aspects of your um, personality, augmenting them, and then also providing contradictions to those as well to be able to create depth and um, multi-dimension to, to the characters which which you know if you imagine an archetype as a um or or, or breaking an archetype down into a, a statue you you would start with a large block of ice for example which is your archetype and then you would take a chainsaw to it and you start to give it form and then after that you your tools slowly become more and more intricate as the specificity of the lines that you create um kind of give more of a um a, a form that's that's like um the eventual um, shape that you want to create for that sculpture. And that's the same with building characters as well. And I suppose those more intricate tools are those specific aspects of your character and the nuance of the personality and, and little areas of contradiction to be able to give that character shape and tone and depth. Okay. Um, it could, I guess conversely, is there um, is there a point where you want to stop using like tropes where it becomes it stops making sense or it becomes like a cartoon version of itself um uh or are there are there any examples do you see of that because i have a couple in my head of like things that have been done and i don't know why i see them in media anymore but um do you is there do you have any thoughts on on, oh, on the use of tropes or the overuse of tropes yeah i think as uh society progresses um the the inclusion of archetypes can sometimes even be problematic. Um, so it's interesting to see how, as we move forward um, in society, like the, the media and the content that we create kind of moves in parallel with that as well. So um, a good example of that is uh, James Bond, um, who for 50 years since, I think it was 1962 was the first, film well the first film of course it was a series of books before that but um he was he was essentially a, a typical um archetype he was kind of like the warrior character who always moved alone and typically he was a serial womanizer as well and he uh, he never let himself get close to a woman beyond a sexual capacity so he was a, an example of a very clear archetype and then as uh, the modern audience developed and as society moved forward and yeah, as the modern audience kind of demands more complexity to their characters as, as the media and the reach of the media grows. Um, 
his character changed with Casino Royale and for other than maybe the exception of one film that I think was again in the 60s he actually falls in love with a woman which was like the unthinkable thing for his character and then um that kind of drove or the subsequent events of that I'm 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 not going to give spoilers but I reckon a lot of people probably most people have seen it by now anyway <laughs> um but what happens with that afterwards drives the complexity for for the character for the rest of the franchise um so yeah I think there are there are times for when tropes no longer become um applicable to how we are as a uh, how we are as a society but then also i think when they become well-worn and people are, are sick of them and um we we see a trope and instantly recognize it as a cliche and then that somehow becomes repellent to the audience i think that's also a time for us then to strive for uh, a more original take on that character or that scene or whatever the trope might be right that makes sense um you know, it's, it's always interesting to me that like um, <clears throat> the pattern that I've seen so far, you know, doing all of these different interviews with different creatives is that discovery is the ultimate goal of, of uh, most most projects mm-hmm. um, or I mean, or it should be. Uh, and I, when there's nothing for there's nothing to discover in a genre <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or franchise, it's kind of like, OK, there's it's not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of interesting. It's. You know, the, the thing that's always <clears throat> kind of, I don't know if it's bothered me, but it's always perplexed me is, uh, are you familiar with uh, Walt Disney's initial films like Snow White, Bambi, yes. uh, Pinocchio? Yeah, some, not all. Definitely Snow White and Bambi. Um, yeah, yeah. I used to have a lot of them on video. Me and my sister would watch them when we were younger. So I know a few of them. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it It's so interesting because um, the... Is that Walt Disney? He did Snow White, which was a you know a female protagonist, and um, and after that, it was massively successful. And then he followed up with Pinocchio, which was like a little wooden boy protagonist. There was no female love interest, and it was about him and his his creator Geppetto. Mm-hmm. And then Bambi, which is about you know, so they were all like really different from each other, mm-hmm. <laughs> and people wanted to see Snow White too, and they wanted more of that. And he, Walt Disney, didn't give it to. He was like, I oh, know I want to do something new, mm-hmm. but but by the time his fourth film came out, uh, Fantasia, which was just like music and and a really cool animation, uh, uh, like more of an art, more of a, like more of a more of an indie film actually, mm-hmm. I, I might say, um, his he. Like his, it was it was already uh, passe to like Walt Disney, which was weird because he and he did nothing but innovate. Um, so I, I don't I I've never figured that out, but I'm also not like a, a professional in the movie industry. Yeah, I I think that's an interesting observation, really, and I I, I would say that I suppose the rules in which he was operating with regards to the industry then are so much different than than what they are now. And I suppose to some extent he had a huge creative uh, monopoly really on the market um, and probably quite a lot of sway on, on the market now. Whereas I think w- with things now, a lot of times writers find success or don't find success based on the market forces which are dictated by um, the people who consume them more so than uh, more so than the people that create them obviously there is of course some impact that's that's being had there 
But um, I mean, like, for example, at the moment, the most popular um, studio franchise at the moment is, is Marvel, I suppose. And superhero movies are getting thrown out all the time. Now, Marvel is, of course, huge, but they don't necessarily have the same monopoly, I think, that, that uh, Walt Disney would have had. In was Snow White in the thirties or forties? Thirty nine. Thirty nine. Forty. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's so much content now. I think that there's there's less creative choice. Oh, that's a good point. I never even thought about that. That year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's, it's interesting because now, like, music artists do it now a lot, probably more so than um, than film directors, where over time their their voice as artists completely changes and they explore different things and and yeah it depends on the director some jump from genre to genre um you know like hitchcock did that for example he, he kind of like made an amazing film in in every genre and kubrick as well um but yeah i think that there's probably i met with a producer recently who said to me that it's it's very, very much easier, at least in the British market, for a writer to create something in one genre, whether that be thriller, horror, or whatever, and then stick with that because it's easier to market themselves as as a writer. So I think there's there's more of a tendency maybe now for people to be consistent because the market's more saturated. And like a writer's voice is their currency. You hear that a lot. The screenwriter's currency is the um, the tone in which they write and the kind of thematic messages that are similar in some ways across across their films. Hmm. That's that's so interesting. Um, that makes a lot of sense too. Uh, uh, sort of touching on on Marvel because I, I feel like what they did with the Marvel Cinematic Universe is unique um, and. But I, I don't, I don't just, I'm going to preface this with, I don't go on, on social media a lot mm -hmm. and I don't, um, I, I don't look into uh, what people are talking about. I, I'm just sort of concerned with the actual media itself. So I don't know if this is a, a popular take, but I personally, I'm getting um, fatigued by, by Marvel. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's too much. I, in fact, I didn't even watch Thor in the theaters. I would, I would have watched every movie till this point and now I'm, I stopped on, I didn't see two of the series and I think I'm, I don't know. I, I don't, I kind of, it kind of seems like a job now to watch yeah. other stuff. Yeah. I, uh, I do you have any thoughts on what they did? I, I can probably count on, I can probably count on one hand the last, the, the number of Marvel films that I've seen over the last two or three years, I think. Yeah. I tend not to watch them so much because I think my fatigue probably set in a lot earlier than, than yours did, but I empathize with you there for sure. But I liked out, out of the ones that, uh, you know, I have seen recently over the last five years, something like Thor Ragnarok or, um, of course, Deadpool. And also I really like the, uh, the multiverse, um, Spider-Man film as well. And I think because they were breaking the mold and it was something that typically wasn't, marvel uh at least how i understand it anyway um but yeah it's going to be interesting to see how much longer that um position that they have over the market is going to be sustained for because of course everything comes in waves 
and I'm just interested to know when Marvel's time will be up and um, what's what what's going to be next, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also curious to see if anyone follows that model of uh, investing in disparate characters and movies and mm. then combining them. For, I mean, it's I incredibly clever. I have to say, even though it doesn't align with my taste, it's like both creatively and commercially as well. It's very, very smart. The ability that they have to weave all of these different timelines and storylines in such, such intricate detail. Like it's, it is really quite a feat. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't so much align with my taste. And I, I think that it probably, you know, it has a matter of time and until things shift, but in what direction, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> so I have a, so this one is, is, is sort of weird and I'm hoping it makes sense. <laughs> this question. Mm. Um, uh, and if it's, it's a little, if it's a little too abstract, I could, I could, I could, uh, switch it up a little bit, but, um, so somebody asked me who is a, uh, she's a UI UX designer and she's from, she's from another country and she came to America and she's had trouble, not trouble, but it's challenging for her to, to resonate with a different audience. So uh, I guess my question is, um, I guess it's two part one. How do you, how do you resonate or do you even attempt to resonate with a culture that you're not a part of? Like if you're trying to have more global appeal and two, is there, is there, is there any thought into having a global appeal of this, this works great for where I'm at, but everyone in the world has to understand it? Or is there any level of, of that kind of thinking? Yeah, I think there's an interesting contradiction there because um, a lot of the time when, when people are trying to resonate with an audience, uh, and this is a piece of advice that I give to writers a lot as well, is just be true to who you are and what your experience is. Um, because even though that might be diff totally different from someone else, there is uh, a sense that it is real and it's authentic. And there will be something that uh, an audience will be able to connect to on that. So even if it's not the specific um, experience of someone moving to another another country and, and struggling to fit in, people might find that they start a new job and they go and they struggle to make friends in the office. Now, that's two completely different things. And one could be, you know, experienced by an American going, getting a new job and going into an office that's full of Americans. But the core emotional um, kind of distilled essence is the same, which I guess is isolation and loneliness. So I think when you, um, when, even though that there might not be the nuances of the, the cultural experience that someone's able to empathize with there, I think the emotion of it is uh, actually something that's, that's relatable and that we can empathize with. And that's why, that, that's why we can empathize with um, ET, for example, like, you know, none of us have been an alien, but a lot of us have probably missed home at some point. So. Um, I think it's, there's something that's human in, in all, uh, experiences in, in, in different ways, because we all share emotion. Um, it's just outletted and manifested in different ways, I think. 
Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but maybe the first the first part, and then the second part of your question, you have to remind me. Oh yeah, is um, do you ever think about the global audience, like um, uh, because you know we're being you know before like 20 years ago, I would have to drive out you know because I'm in Los Angeles, so I would have to drive out um, to find like anime and stuff. I'd have to go out of my way to to buy you know anime from Japan. And now everything is available to everyone, you know, um, in your hand. So does, do you think um, that kind of globalization will affect storytelling? Uh, and sort of uh, married to that is, do you ever factor in how the rest of the globe would, would, would uh, find your story or try to appeal on a global level? Or is that still answered by that first question? Mm. I, I think I think that um, in my own writing as well, because I do write myself, um, I do like stories that are kind of flavoured with a quintessentially British texture, which would be geared towards the, the, the British market, really. But still, there, there have been uh, like Fleabag, for example, that was made for the BBC, and it's, it's very typically English in its tone and its humour um it's quite dark and it's 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 very sarcastic in a lot of ways and also encapsulates what it means to be um a a british woman a british modern woman and also the characters reflect um kind of british archetypes but who are also like nuanced uh, in themselves just to come back to what we said to begin with However, that was very well received. Um, I know it was very well received in America. I can't really speak for the rest of the world, but I know that it was distributed globally. I think that it is important for writers to consider uh, the fact that they will be, or hopefully will be reaching a, um, a global audience. But I think the most important thing is to stay true to the uh, emotional experience of the characters because that's the one thing that's going to allow the story to um to carry uh, the the other the other side of the question is as or the other kind of option is to uh write something that appeals to other a universal experience that isn't necessarily emotional so a great example of this was mr bean which has absolutely no dialogue um, at least in the TV series anyway, but that was very well received across the world um, because there was something that I guess was universal about the comedy in that everyone has experienced, uh, for want of a better term, like the village idiot, really, or someone that uses a sledgehammer to crack a nut, or just the idea of contradiction in humour is something that's um, very like universal as well. And that's exactly what Mr. Bean is, is built around. It's built around subversions where we expect, we expect him to solve a, or, or we would solve a problem in a certain way. And then Mr. Bean does it a completely different way. Yet we're led down a path of expectation um, that he takes. And then he subverts that himself as well. And it's very clever writing because we see all of that and that comedy is universal without the need for dialogue. So it travels well naturally anyway. Um, so that gave it kind of commercial success as well. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, and th that makes a lot of sense too, because uh, 
I I had previously uh, interviewed a um, a reality show producer, uh, and I myself used to, I used to pitch reality shows. Okay, and sure. uh, what was popular is is uh, uh, subcultures uh, of of something. So it's like this is like the car building world of Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. or it's something very a very specific culture, and because people want to know what this is about. So it's a discovery for them to know about this culture, or how they think. And, and so it does, it does make sense that like, if you're just true to yourself, um, it'll, it, 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 it's actually, it's actually more appealing like that. It, it's know. true. You know, I think because like one, for example, um, I mean, there's so many reality shows around now and they're actually like, they've definitely ascended quite a lot over the last 10 years. They are very, very popular. And there was something like um, like Storage Wars, for example, was on a a, a, a channel in, in the UK. Are you aware of that one, Storage Wars? So I've, yeah, I've never like even thought I would be interested or engaged in a world of um, people that bid for unknown items in a, in a storage container. But then you put that on and it's like you you can be sat there for an hour watching it and you get to know all the characters and stuff and it's like incredibly compelling for some reason. Um, and I think the fact that it is so specific and these these obviously the characters are, uh, or the people in the show are playing up to um, the cameras, which is the nature of reality TV anyway, and they kind of become caricatures. But for that reason, they're so textured, they're so different to... The experience that I have in my day to day life that some that sometimes that that becomes an attractive thing, you know. I have to say I haven't actually watched yeah. Storage Wars in a number of years, but that was just an example right. <laughs> off the top of my head. Yeah, no, there's it's interesting. There is one in um, I, I don't I don't know what part uh, of of the I my geography is bad. Mm. What, I don't know what part of the UK it was. It was British. And it was this guy, he went around like fixing people's gardens. <laughs> and so he, so he would like, they'll say, I want this kind of garden or this kind of garden. And that, that was cool on its own. But the, the cooler part was him walking around these neighborhoods. Cause I, cause over here, everything's like concrete, mm. but over there, there's like these nice hillsides mm. and everything's green. I was like, it's so, and so just that was, was enough for me. I wanted to watch because I wanted to see what the neighborhoods look yeah, like. Exactly. That, that's the thing. And that's a person that's, you know, obviously a, an interest or a preference of, of yours as well. And, you know, stripping it right down to, to the beginning of media, that's, that's essentially what it is. It's a window uh, into another world. Um, but I just think this is a really interesting point that's worth noting about reality TV in general and why it is so successful. Um, is because it's so powerful in terms of its uh, ability to tap into our evolutionary mindset. Because when we were first gathering in in groups uh, as as humans, when we were first able to tame fire and and we became to encounter the same people more regularly as as communities started to form, we could preserve food and there was more of a sense of comfort rather than a nomadic lifestyle that would have that would have occurred before. Um, there was essentially people were gossiping around each other uh, because you would talk about who was who was successful in the group in terms of who had gathered that many you know more berries than anyone else or conversely as well they would they would gossip about who who was rubbish at, at 
at collecting berries or who would just steal the berries from the rest of the tribe. And that's because in that, in that fine balance of survival that we were experiencing at that point, it was really important for the group to know who would be beneficial uh, to the group and who would be detrimental as well. So that's so gossip became uh, essentially a route for our collective survival and it kind of became hardwired into our evolutionary brains and that's why it's so compelling for us to see people act um in morally abhorrent or or kind of morally supportive ways that we can get behind and that's also what drives our curiosity in films a lot of the time as well and in tv because when we see a character behaving in a in a certain way that's um, that 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 we feel is 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 beneficial or morally um, you know supportive that, that we like, and then conversely we see the villain or the antagonist of the story who's the opposite of that. We want to find out whether or not there is this kind of sense of primal justice that's um, fulfilled by the end because. Back in those times, if if I did see you, for example, Joe eating all the berries that we'd that we'd collected, you would be exiled from the group, and that would mean probably death for you. Um, and that would be a sense of of justice, of evolutionary or primal justice for for the group. So we see that a lot in um, in gossip, and that's actually how uh, neuroscientists and linguists think that language began to form in more complex. Uh, structures as well more so than it came from a a need for us to collectively organize ourselves um so yeah like made in chelsea for example is a big one in in the uk or was a big one or or love island these kind of things where relationships are a terrible classic reality tv shows that just dominate like the mainstream kind of uh conversation around reality tv um, yeah, it has very solid grounding in evolutionary psychology, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that, that's so interesting because um, one of the, so I'm, I'm writing a book called Blueprint for Fun about how to make a product fun. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, part of the, the of the, what it what looks like the reason for uh, dopamine release is that you've learned something that will help your survivability. Mm. So, even if it's made up in a made up context, like in a video game, like I reached level 15 or whatever, to you, this is the most important thing. And that's why you're 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 being rewarded to be able to survive or you've learned something that's a, that makes you survive. But it, it's it's a lot more um, useful uh, if you're looking at human traits and you're looking at, you know, people who are doing villainous things and then you see them get their comeuppance. You're like, oh yeah, that's what happens if you go and steal all the berries, you die. Exactly. Um, exactly. So that, yeah, that's... That that that's awesome. Yeah, that's what that keeps tracks. us in check as well. You know, I think that that sense that we understand that we do we do operate and live as part of a uh, as part of a group, and that secures our survival. And that's what you know, that's what stops us from doing all the things that are in a in a mind might impulsively, you know, things that fire up. They very quickly get they very quickly get squashed by the. Um, super ego as yeah. Freud called it just to kind of maintain survival as part of the group and be a good citizen <laughs> yeah I, I i i saw that in a um <clears throat> i forgot what it was religion for breakfast there was a youtube channel that that studies this kind of stuff and they said that uh 
it's more uh, for survivability. Even the smartest person alive doesn't have as high survivability as a social person. So like being social is a lot more valuable than being smart. Very true. Very true. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's why we have so many more dogs than we have wolves now as well. It's the same oh. principle. That's a good point. Yeah. I love that. Um, let's see. I think I had a couple of questions left I wanted to ask. Um, although I think we've answered a lot of them. Um, oh, this is what, this one's <clears throat> this one's specific. Mm-hmm. Um, so you always hear that, or or to what I've researched, um, when you're writing characters, you want them to be likable. Uh, I guess what what is the most important thing when you're writing a protagonist? Is it that they're likable or, 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 or I guess, I guess a better question is like, why are, why is that such a requirement to be likable? Mm. Yeah. This is kind of one of the big myths that surrounds, um, particularly Hollywood, I think, but in general, like screenwriter, like in, in terms of principles of screenwriting, you do hear that a lot the term sympathetic is thrown around a lot for a likable character. And I think that's maybe Mm -hmm. because likable characters are easier to market to begin with. I think that's why we hear this a lot because it's um, for the, for the, for the reasons that we just talked about, you know, a morally abhorrent character maybe is, is repellent in our minds from that kind of evolutionary uh, perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Hollywood or producers maybe find it easier to to market a story where there is a central character that everyone likes. Um, so I think that's where that comes from. But actually, the most important thing is that a character is understood by the audience and that they're mm. empathetic more so than um, sympathetic, or we can empathize with them more so than we can sympathize with them. And that's basically, again, because we understand the world through a chain of cause and effect. So all we want to see in films really is we want to understand the character. And if we see a certain event that triggers that character to behave in a certain way, then we're willing to accept that. So there's been very popular films which are, um, and TV series, of course, which are, built around a protagonist who is an anti-hero. So in recent times, for example, you have, uh, of course, Breaking Bad was a huge one. Um, there was Wolf of Wall Street as well, which is an anti-hero story that was quite successful. Uh, of course, another Scorsese one classic that is um, Taxi Driver, uh, something like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as well, female-led anti-hero story. Um, Cruella came out recently, even though maybe not as successful, but it was that that's maybe an example that's maybe more mainstream in terms of, um, an anti-hero story, but the way that they achieve, uh, making those stories compelling to an audience is just to ensure that the audience is aware of the, aware of why they take the actions that they do and why they're may, they're such a bad person, whether it be because of the pressure that they're under to make certain decisions or it be as a response to some kind of trauma that they have in their life or because of the the people that they interact with. Um, as long as there's a reason, then we can empathise with that character and they become a lot easier to accept. That makes sense. Uh, do you have, uh, have you seen Married with Children? Have you seen what, sorry? 
Married with Children. Married with Children. Was that this? Uh, uh, was that the series? Like a, yeah, a sitcom. yeah, the TV show. Yeah, yeah. I did yeah. see a few of those. That used to be on TV just before I went to school. So if I could get ten minutes of TV before I went out, I would. I would catch that sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Because the the main character Al Bundy, he's mm. he's a terrible person. Yeah, he is actually <laughs> a reflection, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He lies, he cheats, he steals. Um, but but I think I feel like um, in a weird way it makes him more likable because because uh, I empathize with him. I, I feel bad for him. Yeah. And even though he's a bad person, um, uh, I, I think I think it's so. Maybe Hollywood needs to update their thinking on yeah. what likable is. I, I can't remember with that specific series what would motivate him to behave like that maybe it's because of like the abrasive nature of of the other characters around him and his family i can't quite remember (laughs) the other characters but if yeah there needed to be i'm sure and i'm sure there was a reason for why he behaved like that because otherwise the the audience would turn away and say like i don't like him and i don't understand why he's why he's so bad you know yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, his family were disrespectful to him all the time. At the same time, he was, he kind of earned it. Mm. So it was a mutual. Yeah. 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 That's fair enough. <laughs> the environment makes yeah. sense. So you can empathize with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you could actually. <laughs> it's really, it was, but yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> so before, before we wrap up here, yeah. I'm, I'm always curious about, um, how how the creative person starts on their journey did you did you want to get into you know the industry you're in now since you were a kid or when was that first kind of spark of like this is something that i'm really into i think it was um i actually didn't study film at all i studied politics when i went to university and i think i I always had an affinity for for writing and at one point i wanted to be a political journalist and then the more I studied politics, I like political philosophy, but the more I studied politics, I became like quite quickly disengaged with it as a system to organize ourselves. Um, so then after university, I think I was, I was saving up money to go, uh, to go traveling for nine months. And in between the shifts that I would have working at a restaurant, I was watching a lot of short films. And really then I found my taste in terms of the the stuff that I now write myself. But at that time, it was the stuff that I liked to watch. And that mainly came from independent short films that were coming out of uh, that were coming out of Britain. So that fueled an interest in me. And then I dabbled with making documentaries whilst I not only whilst I was away, but also a little bit after. And I kind of took quite a convoluted path to where I am now um but over the last four four years i would say i um i've kind of became self-taught in what i do and i just read everything like i uh any book on screenwriting or any resource that i could i ingested and and uh, and then was also reading a lot of produced screenplays of films that i'd liked and films even that i didn't like um and then, in, in then started actually reading scripts from other writers that were uh, speculative scripts, as they're called in the industry, that were unproduced, and it just fed more and more the interest. And and the more I read, the more I became aware of my own taste with where I want to eventually become as a writer as well. So, 
That's cool. I I, I like that it, it sort of started on um, the interest with the political systems. Mm. Do you see some of that still in how do you or can you relate that 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 initial interest to what you're doing now? Like the uh, of of why you initially had that as your major. Mm. Yeah, I think the stuff that I learned along the way has definitely shaped my uh, style of writing and the stuff that I like to write about. I really like satire um, and dark comedy. So there's a lot of stuff that I um, learned about mechanics of politics that I now kind of have flipped on its head and, and um, try and make comments on in, in, in my own writing now as well. The uh, first short film that I wrote and directed was um, about, it's set in modern times in Britain, about uh, Jesus having an existential crisis uh, when the world finds out that God doesn't exist. And that's um, that was based on uh, Nietzschean philosophy that I picked up whilst I was uh, at university. So um, yeah, the degree went somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to see that <laughs> uh, I'll, I can send you the link for it man okay uh, cool so uh, are there any 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 projects uh, anything uh, where can people find you on social media like what's next for what's next for you man? yeah so um, currently I'm working on two features simultaneously and then I have a concept for uh, a TV series that I'll get into writing the pilot once I'm at a happy point with these um these two feature films um on top of that like i just i'm working to uh build my business as much as possible as a, as a screenplay consultant um and all the information about that and stuff can be found on my website which is just nickfor.com uh i also post daily videos on tiktok um which kind of offer individual um, principles of screenwriting or looks at um, films in general as well or makes comments on certain specific films um, and that's you can find me on that uh, at nick for that's f-o-r-e for four by the way nick, at nick for consultant um, and then on instagram i'm at nick for underscore as well and i also post the tiktok videos on instagram for those that aren't uh, enlightened enough to be on the TikTok platform yet. Awesome. Well, th thank you so much for being uh, taking the time, Nick. This was very, this is very fun, and uh, I've learned so much, and, um, and and definitely would welcome, would love to have you back. Oh, uh, definitely, man. I would love, yeah, I would love to come back. It's been a really good conversation, and uh, thanks for inviting me along. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good one. You as well, man. Ciao. All right. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about me, including where to find my book, you can visit me at harbingerofun.com. See you next episode.